Hi, my name is Adam, and I've never seen The Rocketeer. Hi, everyone. Welcome to Fine, I'll Watch It. My name is Johnny. I'm Bridget. And this is the show where we convince one of our friends, maybe a stranger, we'll see where that maybe show leads us to, but we convince one of them to watch a classic movie, an underrated gem. In this case, it might be an underrated gem because I don't think it's on everyone's radar, but it maybe started a superhero trend, maybe um, a popular one. But tonight we are joined with Adam, of course, he's always joining us, but he has not seen The Rocketeer. And arguably the biggest superhero fan of this show. I don't think we'll have an, a bigger one on this show. So um, I'm I surprised. I can't imagine that. <laughs> I can't imagine it either. So I don't. I can't say that I'm surprised you haven't seen it. Just because it is kind of one of those like someone has to either mention the title or you have to see a picture to kind of remember at least for me that the movie exists. And I'm not sure if maybe that's something you sort of just fell into because of. Being a big superhero fan, right before we started, we talked about the fact the director directed a movie that maybe you really enjoyed. That's part of the Avengers uh, canon. So I'm kind of just going to toss it to you. What is sort of your either recollection of this movie or have you discovered it recently that it exists? No, I mean, I've always kind of known this has existed. Uh, It's one of those ones that it's been in my Netflix queue probably since I got streaming Netflix. I mean, I don't think it's there now. I think it's officially on Disney Plus because it is a Disney movie, I believe. I don't know why I never saw it. I mean, it would have come out when I was very young. I think probably three or four. Is this 92, 90, somewhere in that? 91? 91, yep. Okay. Yeah. Um, so it would. I, I wouldn't necessarily say it started the superhero genre just because you would have had Batman 89 before this but that one I I saw because I know Batman. Like there's an existing um, an existing character, and I don't know if this character existed before. Part of me gets this vibe that it's either based on an old comic strip or just is set in old and like I I for some reason I get a 30s vibe to it. I don't know if that's because it's set in the 30s or if it's based on a comic from the 30s or something. I just get an old timey vibe to it, but it's not the level of a Batman. So that's why I would have seen something from around that same time, still young, a young age thing for me. But I would have at least seen Batman because it's it's Batman. So, right. right. Yeah, I I know it exists. I don't know too much about it. I know the suit fairly well. Like I've seen the posters Uh, and to your point about this kind of flying under the radar. I know this is one that I don't think was reviewed particularly well, kind of middling uh, from what I understand. I probably didn't do too well at the box office either. But I feel like this is a cult classic that found a lot of legs on, you know, on VHS and home release uh, to where uh, it has maintained uh, a cult-like status to be a thing that I would have even heard of uh, when I would have been growing up. But yeah, I don't know why it never came across my viewing screen I would you'd think that the combination of it being kind of proto superhero Disney that that would have checked a few boxes as a kid growing up for me. Uh, I'm sure I would have seen the trailer for this ahead of an Aladdin VHS or something <laughs> like that because this would have been coming out around the powerhouse time of Disney animation or the right. Renaissance, if you will. Homeward and, Bound. Yeah, and I feel like this definitely would have been 
uh, trailer that played at the beginning. Like, you know, yeah. So that's probably the extent of what I've seen of this is probably, you know, glamour shots of him flying off into the sky and rescuing Jennifer Connelly from certain doom or whatever. <laughs> but, um, <laughs> but yeah, so I, I don't really know too much about it. Uh, I do know the director is Joe Johnston, who went on to direct the first Captain America, the first Avenger, which I do really love that movie. I quite enjoy it because not only is it a good, just like Captain America origin story, but it's got the World War II vibe to it. It kind of builds on some supernatural elements that had yet to be really introduced in the Marvel Cinematic Universe. Like Thor would have come out just before it, which would have set up the real supernatural kind of stuff to it. But this kind of brought that vibe to the regular world and not this fantastical place. So I do I do really enjoy that movie. It's one of my favorites uh, in the MCU. So I... I remember when that was coming out, everyone was like, oh, the guy who did The Rocketeer did this. Like, that's exciting. He has pedigree. <laughs> he should be able <laughs> to uh, to pull this off. Uh, and I think that's probably when I would have seriously considered putting this on a list and trying to watch it. It just just never, never came about for me. How about you guys? What is, what is your kind of history with this? Bridget? So I didn't see this as a kid, but I remember the poster for it was at the Danbury Lowe's where I would always go see movies with my father. And it's a very, I don't know if either of you have ever seen it, but it's really striking looking. And yeah, a little he looks bit... like the Chrysler building or something. Yeah, <laughs> like he does. And it's kind of, I, I always was fascinated by it, but I had no, no other concept of what this movie was about um, up until I was in my 20s, and the person I was seeing at the time was a very big comic book Marvel person. And so in the lead up to Captain America coming out, like, oh, my God, Joe Johnston, The Rocketeer. Oh, you haven't seen The Rocketeer? It's really good. Didn't It wasn't loved the way it should have been. So <laughs> I, I, I watched it at that time, and, you know, I I enjoyed it, but it just didn't, you know, it's not something I've gone back to. I didn't. I don't have the same sort of love for superheroes that Adam does clearly, you know, but it's good. It's enjoyable. And I think there's, I don't know. I am excited, Adam, for you to see it. I think this is a good, good choice. Yeah. I, when he had said that he had not seen it, I was like, oh, this is like the Iron Man before Iron Man. So mm-hmm. I'm wondering why he had not sort of dug into watching it beforehand. I will admittedly say that I have a very, very foggy memory of this movie, if not like a very sort of deja vu, maybe of seeing clips of it in a blockbuster or something like that, where I maybe convinced myself that I've seen it because I've seen so much of it in posters or what have you. So I'm excited to see it because, again, I just I can't I can't remember certain scenes. I can't re- I can't remember the score. I think James Horner does the score, which he's always done like very like, you know, signature iconic scores. But I, yeah, I, you know, and I think it's too, is because I, I'm like a DC, uh, fan. Not, I mean, not a, you know, again, sort of, you know, the, the Marvel fan that Adam is, but, you know, I grew up watching the original, uh, Supermans and the Tim Burton Batman. Mm-hmm. Um, and those are, you know, built in cult, like pop culture, marketable characters with, you know, memorable moments. Not to say this one does, but, you know, even like the scores of Superman, I mean, you're humming that out of the theater, you're humming the, I forget who did the Tim Burton one. Um, Danny Elfman. Danny Elfman, correct. So, I mean, it's surprising to see that they gave money 
to this idea because I just don't see unless Joe because I mean Joe Johnson is a special effects guy to begin with. He worked mm-hmm. on all, all the original Star Wars movies. He his first directed movie was Honey I Shrunk the Kids, which is a movie that I adored. Um, that also had you know for the time it's you know cool special effects. So I'm going to bet that off of his success with Honey I Shrunk the Kids and the fact that maybe this is a childhood favorite. A superhero movie of his. I, I'm just, I'm kind of reaching here, but I'm just trying to see why maybe the studio threw him the money to make this because it doesn't seem like a, a low budget drama. You know what I mean? It seems like they're they're taking quite a bit on a on a superhero that I don't think has a lot of the the lore that a lot of people knew, and that's probably half the reason why it maybe didn't do so good in the box office and why it's sort of buried in sort of film history, if you will, with as, as you know, according to superheroes. But um, yeah, I can't. I can't recollect a lot of scenes in it. I know Jennifer Collins in it. I, I can't even re- remember who the main actor is. Um, no, my brain says he's Nathan Fillion, but he's not. I know he's not. I think it's just because he looks hair. like. Well, it's the hair, and I think he looks probably like the character from Firefly. Like that's how I, I like a brown leather kind of vibe to it. Um, but I know that's not right. It's just some for some yeah. reason in my brain I can't distinguish. <laughs> the, the very right, little right. that I know of his face, I just you know slap a different actor's face <laughs> on a body that looks very similar to the other one. See, I'm expecting Brendan Fraser tonight, so we'll see how that pans out. But yeah, um, I mean, I, I do kind of get from again not looking at a picture or anything. It does remind me of Brendan Fraser from The Mummy, which again is a '30s kind of correct character. Uh, so I think that that kind of plays well too. And I think to your point about why they maybe threw money at this again, not knowing the history of this character, if there is a history prior to this movie, (laughs) I feel like this is a time period where DC and Warner brothers struck it with Batman. And then probably by this time, I would say Batman returns. If like, if that wasn't already out when this came out, it was clearly in the works. Everyone knew about it. But this is when studios were just throwing money to try to find their superhero thing. So I feel like in this early 90s, we would have had this. We would have had Dick Tracy. We would have had probably Billy Zane's Phantom, I want to say, is out around this time. Yeah, too. I mean, you even like, had, you had Spawn, which was a popular comic book for, you know, and then it yeah. turned, it turned that into a movie. Again, taking big risks. But yeah, it's kind of a little bit of a head scratcher because this is Marvel property, right? No. It is not. So it's this not, is it's not DC or Marvel property. No, this is based. It is based off of uh, a character that existed prior to the film. Um, uh, the Rocketeer was a uh, comic book series created by uh, an artist named Dave Stevens uh, in the 1980s. Um, and, oh, okay. So that's fairly new. Yeah, and talk a little bit more in our second half about some of the differences um, between book in the film but it was yeah this came out of that early push like following batman in 1989 and um dick tracy of like what this is what are we going to have what is touchstone and disney going to have as their superhero of their own and right because batman made a ton of money hugely successful so it's a weird it's weird i think it feels weird to us living in the post mcu world but it's just weird because like they went with such a new uh, like such a you know very Mm -hmm. new property that Mm -hmm. they didn't go to an updated spider-man or like some of these ones have been around for 80 years or 60 years or whatever 
So it's just, I, I have to think that it was just a sort of um, a passion project for someone involved with the, the movie. Like, again, Honey, I Shrunk the Kids, you know, if somebody, if that was very successful. And I think Joe Johnson, what we talked about, was the first one to direct it. You know, he they they probably afterward they're like, okay, go ahead, make whatever you want. Kind of like, you know, Christopher, Christopher Nolan rebooting Batman. They go ahead, make whatever you want. He comes out with Inception. You know what I mean? Like, I don't think any studio would have given money for that before Batman. You know, it's just a crazy idea that needs a $200 million. But after you make Batman or the Dark Knight trilogy, sure, do whatever the hell you want. So I got to imagine it just, it's, like I said, I, I think they would have gone for a more popular superhero, a bankable superhero. But here it's, I think they really sort of took a gamble on someone's uh, big uh, passion project idea. Yeah. Well, and I think too, there's a lot of, we take for granted you know, the conglomeration of Disney and Marvel, like how that has really amassed and solidified through the 80s and the 90s. Marvel in particular was going through, and Adam, as our Marvel person, you can correct me if I'm misremembering, but there was a lot of like financial issues. So they were selling off different properties. There were all sorts of ownership issues. So mm-hmm. the ability to like get permission to license those characters was really, really tricky. So that's why, you know, X-Men, mm. even though that's a Marvel property, has never technically been brought into the MCU. Spider-Man was owned by Sony. At one point the X-Men were owned by a toy company actually. So now to us, we like, well, here's this whole universe. All these characters are interconnected in the books. Of course, you're going to go down that road. I don't think it would have been financially feasible in the early 90s to do so because it was so fragmented at the time. Right, right. And and, and to your point, I think a lot of people do just say, oh, it's DC and Marvel. It's red and blue, Red Sox, Yankees. It's just like there's mm-hmm. other comic book publishers. I think Image is one. I mm-hmm. think – um so, I mean, again, I think it has to do with just how popular those comics have been mm-hmm. for them to now, because I know studios now know, okay, in order for us to make a movie, at least one that's going to generate the thrills and a trailer for people to go see the movie, we're going to have to throw a ton of money at it. And it's a huge risk if it's not someone that, that people recognize. So, and they've made it, I, I think what they did really smart with the Marvel movies is that they, they introduced other characters that you would not have known. Mm-hmm. going into it and then they sort of were okay now this is a popular character now we can make a side project or a solo one or whatever so it was a very smart move of them to sort of do this sort of cameo smart cameos if you will or you know side characters and then make make them have their own solo movies again i'm not sure how robust the dc character list is it seems like they're kind of running out of characters at least ones but i don't know if they're doing it very smartly where they could be doing that but i think it would be cool to have a studio maybe take a risk on another publisher um, you know, I think they actually are doing another spawn. I, I only I mentioned spawn twice mm-hmm. just because I used to buy those books. I thought they were really cool. They're super gnarly and adult and dark, and it was just so against the stuff that I had seen. And I remember the movie that they came out with being like crap. So I think they're actually going ahead and trying to do it one more time, and hopefully they have some success with it because it is a very interesting story, and it's uh, it pales in con- in contrast to sort of maybe the uh, brighter and I don't want to say bubbly because you'll probably hate me, Adam, but that sort of like you know fun thrills of a an adventure movie opposed to maybe watching you know David Lynch's Seven, you know what I mean, which is kind <laughs> of what Spot falls into. So. I think I think it'd be cool of them to sort of go down that road of looking at other publishers and other properties and making that happen. Yeah, um, and I think with the streaming services now, they're kind of doing that. I mean, Amazon's got 
Invincible right now, which is an animated series based on an image book, uh, which is more adult oriented. You've got things like uh, comic creator Mark Millar's universe yeah. uh, is a go at Netflix. They're coming out with something. I think Jupiter's Legacy in a couple of weeks as a as part of the Millar verse, uh, and so they're they are branching out. Everyone's trying to find their niche. I mean. As long as they don't try to necessarily copy the Marvel model without taking into account why it really works, then I think that's a good thing. The more properties people can see. I mean, last year you had, I think it's, um, I want to say it's Valiant. They did Bloodshot. They've been trying to kind of start their own thing for a while. Yeah. Um, so it's it's definitely wor- it's working towards that that arena. It's just a matter of making sure that you've got the right creators to take care with their you know, take their time, take the care in the source material and and put out the best movie uh, even and or make it the best. Show, yeah. Yeah. And then make it the best version of those characters. Uh, and to your point before, Bridget, I mean, you were spot on with the way that Marvel wasn't the powerhouse we know today. I mean, they were on the verge of bankruptcy several times in the 90s. Uh, rights were everywhere. I mean, at this point in 1991, I think you would have had just a year before a really crappy Captain America TV movie or two. Uh, And so he wasn't going to be a bankable character until 2011. So Marvel wouldn't have necessarily been the place that you look to because they were hemorrhaging money and who's going to really bank on things. But at the same time, I think in the mid to late 90s, you had James Cameron working on a Spider-Man movie. So, I mean, these things were kicking around. It was just a matter of, I think making sure the technology caught up to the sure. lofty ideals of these these kinds of things and figuring out how to get spandex onto the big screen because it <laughs> doesn't really work if you just try to translate it one-to-one. I mean, you look at even Batman 89, you've got these molded, sculpted suits, uh, that, and that's why that was able to work. But Right, right. And I think even some of the the stories that, like, some of the MCU like has adapted don't come out like civil war doesn't come out till the two thousands, you know, those stories that kind of drive the cinematic universe Mm -hmm. forward that I think would be appealing if you were a movie producer, just aren't there. You could look back at these older comic books and I think view them as much more hokey, even though they did, they have, I think Marvel has done a good job at looking at like what is the whole history of these characters and building them in, adapting them. And that's another way you grow the audience too of who is this person? Let me investigate their backstory on Marvel Wiki or whatever, or seek out the books <laughs> or, or Marvel Wiki. I, I don't know if they have a clever name like Wikipedia or not. Wiki. None of them work as well as Wikipedia. It just no. rolls right None of them the do. <laughs> No, no, no. Um, but I mean, ultimately, I'm I'm very excited for this. I think it's a shorter movie, so that's I feel like it's just going to be a fun, quick romp. I like the the look of the the character. I think that's really cool. I mean, we mentioned going in, uh, just the the whole thing kind of seems like it has this Art Deco vibe, which seems fun. Uh, I really like that design aesthetic. I was always a big fan of like Batman the Animated Series that that had that same kind of design aesthetic. So I'm looking forward to just like. Uh, just a fun romp with spectacle, but also kind of, you know, pop and, and whatnot. So I'm, uh, I'm excited to, to finally sit down and get to get a chance to see uh, if it lives up to its cult status or not. Good, good. And uh, Bridget, are you uh, fairly excited to see it again? I know there I'm going to be 
surprised by things in this movie. I don't okay. remember it that well. Um, I do think you both are going to enjoy it. I know, Johnny, you've seen it, but I think there are things that both of you will appreciate in this movie, maybe for different reasons. But yeah, so I'm excited. Gotcha. Yeah, I'm I'm excited too. I I mean, like I said, I, I it's it's such a phasey, foggy movie for me. I'm probably just gonna treat it like I've never seen it, um, and then sort of have the sort of deja vu sort of moments in between while I am. But again, I think if if I'm going into a blind or if let's just say I am that uh, I am excited because he is a sort of special effects oriented director. Um, I mean, he went on to do you know. Jumanji and one of the okay Jurassic sequels and some of the other stuff. So he inherently has the flair for that and has an eye for it. So maybe the movie around it isn't that great, but at the very least will be a lot of uh, cool eye candy and we'll see where maybe that studio's money uh, went to work. So I'm excited. Again, I only just know Jennifer Connelly in it. I'm excited to maybe see some other faces that I don't. There'll be a few faces you like. Okay, cool. Yeah, (laughs) I I, I figured as much as throwing some. The old dad is, you know, whoever, you know, Sean Connery. I don't know. You know what I mean? I'm just kind of throwing <laughs> shit out. But that I am expecting a couple more familiar faces, which will be fun. So I am excited. All right. Well, Adam, what do you have to say for yourself? Fine. I'll watch it. Right, and we are back from watching Rocketeer, a uh, Walt Disney picture featuring Adolf Hitler. Um, <laughs> uh, I have a ton of thoughts. I remember parts of this. I don't remember the Nazis. We'll get to that. But I'm not going to get to my thoughts right away because I think we're going to get right to the hot seat. Adam, this is a superhero movie of sorts. I think it is. What are your initial thoughts or reactions to the rocketeer so uh, initial thoughts uh, just based on what you said uh it's i wouldn't call it a superhero movie but it's definitely like a comic book style movie um, i wouldn't necessarily put it in the superhero genre but it definitely fits in with the it's based on a graphic novel it fits with the the type of vibe that it's that it's going for and i thought it was a bunch of fun i really enjoyed it I thought it was cool. It was like the right mix of campy and like throwback, like a, a nice throwback. I was right. It was the 1930s. <laughs> as soon as it showed that date, I was like, aha, 1938, I knew it. 
I also had no idea Nazis were going to be involved, though I guess I probably should have assumed. I I, I okay. was I was floored when we when we first saw the picture of Adolf Hitler, and I'm like, oh no! And I immediately thought of like like how is this existing on Disney Plus right now, let alone their catalog. Well, I mean, they're not the good guys of the movie, so I no, mean, I no, say, they're like, <laughs> they're not. And I and I was like, okay. Then once I realized that it became like a big part of the third act, I was like, okay, there's almost no way you could get rid of any sort of swastika or Hitler or anything else, and you would have to, you would have a mess of a movie if you did that. So they're kind of stuck with what they ended up producing or giving the go ahead <laughs> in the early nineties. Yeah, I don't um, think this is anything where you would want to take it out. I don't think this is anything that needs to be like edited or isn't appropriate for Disney Plus. I mean, if we were supposed to feel sympathetic at all towards any of the Nazi characters, no, I think of course, maybe you like, have to do that. Like if if Sinclair had turned out, I mean, well, obviously this would be full spoilers, but like if if Sinclair had turned out to be like a good guy at the beginning, and then there was a swerve. Then I think you might have to be like, listen, all Nazis are bad, and like put a disclaimer at the beginning. Um, but I don't think this is a thing where you definitely you need to be like, hey, you put this on Hulu because Nazis and. and <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean, I mean, you're right. You can't you can't do anything about it because it's such a huge plot point. But I was thinking early on if Hitler was just going to be a sort of indicator of the time and period we were in i thought it was a very poor choice to put into a disney picture so i thought maybe that maybe could have been taken out and you didn't really mm-hmm. need that to sort of know where we were or when we were um but then i slowly started realizing that we're sort of doing a little bit of the raiders of the lost ark here yeah. um and Nazis are once again just the worst people on the planet so i and again i'll just quickly just say my initial reaction i actually really enjoyed this i i was having some ups and downs with it but overall i actually really enjoyed it i liked that it didn't stick the sort of like the super um human or superhero traps or tropes and it didn't try to stick to anything it didn't try to throw a bunch of action on it which i think maybe hurt itself at the box office because it's just so far in between this one big action scene kind of early on and I guess there's a couple of shootouts, but I mean, there's nothing really like superhero-ish where he's constantly saving people or doing something. Yeah. To the no, point where he only he only really saves two people as the Rocketeer. Jenny. But I guess and he technically t- he saves America. Yeah. Yeah. Right, and he and he seems more or less like he seems like he's almost like selfish in a way that he likes to just do it for fun. Like he likes the flying element of it. Mm -hmm. And it just so happened to be that people were in peril over this thing. So he happened to be like, okay, I guess I'll save those people too. But I don't think he ever got into it because he has some sort of lofty aspirations of like saving the world or anything like that. He sort of just was a guy who flew a plane who happened to get a hold of this super advanced vacuum. Um, (laughs) But yeah, uh, I mean, he was 100 percent in this from the money for the yeah. money from the get go. And only when he needed it to save the people that he cares about, did it become anything in terms of a superhero style style movie. But it's very it's a lot more of an Indiana Jones movie than it is an Iron Man movie. Right, yeah. right, right. Yeah, uh-huh. it's definitely you get. It's inspired by those old 30s and 40s serials that Mm -hmm. also inspired Indiana Jones and to some point Star Wars as well when you think about like Buck Rogers and stuff. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I I like this movie more on on second watch. 
um, not being forced to watch it, watching it <laughs> of my own volition <laughs> was much more enjoyable. Yeah, I, um, I, so I just, I guess right in the beginning when we sort of just, this seems to be a running trend now of us like discovering who's in a movie from the cast at the mm-hmm. beginning, uh, the t- intro. So super hyped that I saw Alan Arkin. And honestly, he was on mm-hmm. like the tip of my, my tongue when we were sort of rifling off like Sean Connery and other sort of old man supporting <laughs> actors. Um, it was weird to see him with hair. Yeah, it was really weird. Yeah. Um, the whole the whole time I was watching it, I don't know why. I think it was the combination of the glasses and the tinkery, but he just looked like he was playing Geppetto, like a live <laughs> action Geppetto throughout the whole movie. He would kill Geppetto. He, he would. He would have been great. Um, he, I think he does have some hair in Edward Scissorhands. Oh, is that a spoiler? Who hasn't seen Edward Scissorhands here? I haven't, but I don't okay. think Alan Arkin's hair is a big. <laughs> <laughs> I'm assuming it's not a story. Point. It's a huge plot point. Yeah. Is he the um, first one to get a haircut from Edward? that's why he's bald after that that. it's just that that is a very cool scene in the movie too um but i really enjoyed the opening i like the james horner score it reminded me of october sky if you've seen october sky it's very much in the vein of that or um apollo 11 or apollo 13 excuse me Um, yeah it definitely has an atmospheric vibe to it where you know that you're gonna be like like it has a, a not flighty because that is a different connotation in in music but it definitely has like a an atmospheric, like not outer worldly, but just kind of like that big, yeah, uh, big grand sweeping yeah. sort of like you're gonna get swept up into it. It's almost like a like I don't know if James Horner did Rudy, but I felt like I was watching Rudy at the beginning of this. Like that's <laughs> what it sounded like to me. Um, but a very cool opening with the planes kind of flying or him doing the test run of the plane, um, mm-hmm. getting swept up in that whole uh, gangster fight that they're over the over the whole jetpack. Yeah. Uh, I liked all like all the POV shots and everything. I'm like, this is pretty cool because we're looking at something that a lot of people sort of took and, you know, did a lot more with later on with shots. I think, you know, you kind of look at like Dunkirk and some other stuff of recent where they sort of all did POV shots on a plane. Mm-hmm. Uh, but like him punching through the glass to like get all the oil on and everything. I think that was a cool little shot right there. Uh, yeah. I really loved the the little touches. Like I loved the fact that he puts a little bit of gum on the rudder. I'm like, that's his superstition. Cause that is a thing that, that pilots have. Cause you know, when they yeah. go up, they, they may not come back down in, in one piece, uh, especially when you're doing like racing. And this is clearly a prototype plane. Like I like that little touch and I like how that carried through the rest of the movie and ended up being a, you know, the crux of the finale. Um, so I like that little touch too. And I loved the old timey car chase, something about seeing those old 1930s cars going, you know, the 60 miles an hour they can go, <laughs> you know, yeah, but they have the suspension of like a Subaru WRX or something that is oh, like, yeah. like they would be trashed if they ran over like one speed bump. But yeah, it's, I love those old fights. There's only like, uh, like almost like five seconds into any of those fights, like the back windshield just gets blasted out by a gunshot. <laughs> I love the um, Trump where the, the one bad guy is shooting from. Like, oh, right. <laughs> um, but I really, I, I like that opening sequence a lot. I mean, obviously, you know, he's going to make it through the, the plane thing, but you don't know how, like, and you don't, you know, you're not sure how he's going to be able to pull it out, what kind of shape he's going to be in. Um, and so the whole thing just kind of, it sets up the movie quite nicely. Uh, and I really like it really sucks you in. It shows you all of the characters you're pretty much going to need to know, uh, even though we don't get Jennifer Connelly in person, like her picture is there on the, you know, the dash of the plane. So you're really introduced to pretty much all of the main characters except Sinclair 
right in that opening sequence. And so it's yeah, like he's like ragtag uh, tag of group of uh, guys who work the strip or whatever, um, who may would have loved to have been his position early on in life, but they're just sort of like living vicariously through him now and making sure that he does a good job flying and everything. But yeah, it was cool. They sort of ended up, and I liked how everything was sort of shot in camera. I was sort of, I you know, I was a little surprised later on. I mean, not surprised so much, but the special effects sort of became a little more heavier and noticeable later on in the movie. But I thought they could have cheated and done something a little less in the, in the beginning of this. But they did pretty much everything in camera, which I, I thought was pretty impressive. But yeah, and then I love how we sort of get introduced to like the Howard, like Howard Hughes is somehow involved in the story, which I thought was pretty cool. Mm-hmm. And I and I could have swore maybe like in the beginning he was going to be maybe part of like one of like the villains in this for whatever reason, just because I know how Howard Hughes kind of like went off the deep end a little bit and kind of went a little crazy in his life. So mm-hmm. I wasn't sure if he was going to have any part in that. But and then we start meeting like some of like the the more interesting <laughs> characters, and it's not saying Alan Arkin isn't, but we meet. Paul, Paulie from Goodfellas is in this, uh, Bridget, and yes. uh, Adam, I'm sure, I'm sure you've seen Goodfellas. If not, we got to throw on the list like, like now. Um, no, I but... attended Bridget's Goodfellas party. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> we were at my birthday. <laughs> uh, so Bridget, yeah, that was weird seeing him. Cause I don't think I've seen him in too many things outside of this. Mm-hmm. And it was a little wonky for me just because I'm so used to his character in Goodfellas. But he does get to have a similar moment where he basically says, oh, Sinclair, you're a Nazi. I'm sorry. I have to turn my back to you now. Oh, I love that. Yeah. I was just waiting for him to pull out like a Weber grill and start making some sausages right there at the Griffith Observatory. Um, just a little portable one. Just a little portable one. Yeah. Just just yeah. put a little $2,000 on his hand. I got, now I got to turn my back. <laughs> he does look, he looks younger and because they age him up in Goodfellas, but it's a little yeah. jarring to see him playing the age that he was. Yeah, he's moving a little too. faster and everything. I mean, even in the beginning of the movie where he's sort of like doing where, you know, Henry Hill is, you know, all of 15 working at the cab stand or whatever. It's like, you know, Polly doesn't have the move for anyone. So we never really get a sense of how youthful he could be. But here he's kind of flying around the place. Yeah. Um, and then we meet Timothy Dalton's character. Um, mm-hmm. Just and, chewing scenery. Loved it. Chewing scenery. Um. I loved his the the like the Princess Bride moment in the middle of this where we're sort of on set and we get like the the weird happenings of that. Yeah. He looks and I and not so much obviously when he's younger or you know as James Bond or whatever, but he looks a lot like um the villain from the Patriot and uh, Peter Pan movie. I think I, I wrote oh, his name down. Uh, Jason Isaac. Isaac something. Yeah, oh, yeah he's yeah. got like that face and like it, maybe it was just the mustache or whatever and. You know, I hate them both. Maybe that's why they're both. <laughs> <laughs> At least in this movie. Um, yeah. So I liked it. I like getting introduced to those. Those because uh, it, it seemed like there were like three or four villains in this. And I that could have maybe weighed the movie down. But it surprisingly didn't. They both sort of had their own sort of screen time. I don't know, Adam, what do you think about like the multiple sort of villains that we had in this? I thought they weaved together very nicely. I mean, it's. It doesn't necessarily take a lot of unpacking to figure out what's going on. I mean. I, I'm glad that it wasn't a scenario of switching Sinclair halfway through or at the last minute where like, oh, you think he's a good guy or you think he's he's on the, the side of not the Nazis. Um, and I mean, the, the Nazi part of it doesn't really come in. I wasn't even anticipating him becoming one, even though I knew the back, the real world backdrop of events and that he was a bad guy. Like I, it didn't even cross my mind to think like, Oh, who's he working for? Oh, he's working for the Nazis. Like I thought his whole plan and like why he wanted the rocket 
was just so he could film stunts and film some movie with it. Like I thought he was some, you know, megalomaniac who just wanted to use it to create the most grandest spectacle movie of all time and screw the the people who want it for war or whatever. I want it for me and to make boatloads of money. That's like that's what I thought his motivation was the whole sure. time. So when it turned out he was a Nazi, I was like, oh, I probably should have seen this coming. Yeah, he seemed but to have did. a lot of fun swinging on that rope on the Princess Bride. Uh... Oh yeah, the, the movie scene. Uh, that one's the movie great. scene, yeah. Yeah, no, uh, but I liked I liked how you know the clearly the mob is involved at the beginning, and then when they go to Sinclair's house, and you're like, oh okay, so they're working for him, and then you get introduced to his ugly mug of an enforcer. Oh my just, god! Just oh my god! The most grotesque person. I literally audibly like said, what the fuck that face, <laughs> that face. Like as soon as it came out of like the moonlight and you saw his face and his lips and everything, I'm like, what the fuck is that? And then his little tippy toes, like, like coming out of like, the ledge, like when they looked at the window and he's kind of like tippy tapped his little shoes outside. I was like, this guy's making a lot more noise than that. Cause he's like eight feet. I don't know how tall this guy is. I didn't really get a true sense of his scale towards like the end of the movie. And even then I think I, I, I was like, what the hell is this thing? I mean, he's able to walk through the doors of the seaside club or whatever, and those have got to be probably, you know, seven, eight feet tall. And yeah. so he's able to just barely get he, in under that. Yeah, just clears it. Scary individual. Very scary. <laughs> you know, I was going to try to see if I could see how, like, if he's got a height listed, the uh, the actor. He's got to be like a basketball player or something. Or Yeah, I don't know. I mean, it's it's really hard to tell because of the, you know, the face. But right. It's yeah, so grotesque. <laughs> <laughs> it's almost as bad as the bogs and uh, the labyrinth. Um, yeah, and then there's also some like interesting side character. Like I don't know, Bridget, did you notice uh, Evie uh, Barnum or Farnham from Deadwood in the, uh, yeah. the diner? In the he, diner, I don't think he's he said like one really of the pals. Anything. Yeah, no, right, he right. he he does the eye during the fight in the diner. Yeah. We have our queen, Margot Martindale, holding mm-hmm. it down behind the counter. I loved her smacking uh. the dude with the spoon when he was uh, blowing up Cliff's spot on, oh, on yeah. the crash. She's just like, shut up, stop it. Mm-hmm. And, I love that diner. And the clown is Marla Hooch's dad from oh, last yeah. week's episode. Yeah, yeah, Interesting. Yeah. I was like, I know I've seen him and stuff. And I could remember, I was like, I think it's a baseball movie. It might be The Rookie. No, it was last week. <laughs> it was last week that we saw him. Yeah. Um, to be fair, he, it he was just... two weeks ago that we recorded it. <laughs> True. Um, yeah, not getting typecast as much as he's getting timecast to the late 30s, early yeah. 40s. I loved the FBI agents, uh, the, the one who gets punched multiple times. Absolutely yep. deserved it every time he got punched. But he also had, I think, my favorite line of the whole movie, which is when he's trying to interrogate the one guy who survives. And he says, your friend's getting fitted for a pine tuxedo and I was like, or a pine overcoat. And I was yeah, like, I've yeah. never yeah. heard that for a casket, but <laughs> I love it. And I'm going to use it whenever applicable. <laughs> so good. Yeah, I have to say Alan Arkin took like all the lines for me in this. I mean, a number of them were I think he called uh, called him. What was his name in the movie? PD or PV or something? PV. PV. Okay, I kept hearing yeah. PD than PV. He calls our boy a chowderhead early on in the movie, which I thought yeah. was pretty funny. 
And he also, when he puts the helmet on for the first time, he says, you look like a hood ornament. And I thought that was really funny. My favorite um, of his was when the plane crashes and he like lands and he just turns away and goes, that's the end of that. <laughs> God, he but kills yes. it in every movie. And it's kind of crazy. I don't know if it just. It's got to be. I, I have to admit, because he's a very funny guy and I know he's a naturally comedic guy that like he definitely improvises or adds things to the script. I mean, people all don't just come up with that stuff for Alan Arkin. He's coming up for the stuff for the script. I got to imagine. I don't know. Yeah, he's like the Winston Wolf of Hollywood. Like you, you <laughs> right. need someone to bring the charm to the movie. You, you call him on like a nuclear phone. Like, hey, what are you doing? Yeah, <laughs> we need you for Argo. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> Come on down. Like even when they end up shooting up his house, and like we got to go back to the house. Like we don't have a house. We have a gazebo. <laughs> I did love that line too. He's so because he's so sad about it, and he's just like, "We got to get rid of this thing. We can't even have this anymore." He's like, "No, no, no! Just go back to the house. No, we don't have a house." <laughs> oh oh no, my god, was, that was good. I did enjoy that too. I love so, the suit. I love the whole getup. Yeah, I think it it works really well. It's you know the the leather coat, obviously, with all the the snaps and buttons or whatever, really ties it all together. Uh, I did yeah, like it, like hides her. all the straps from like the uh, the rocket and everything. It was nice and clean looking. Yeah, exactly. So it so it looks like it's meant to be there as opposed to, you know, when he first straps it on, it's the backpack setup. It's the you know the strap across the middle. It's like a hiking vest almost. You know, with the right. backpack on the back. And I like that the jacket covers that all up. I like that the you know, the controls go into the sleeve so you don't even really see though. It's not like tubes all around the outside. Like it's not mechanical. It's not anything that that stands out as being weird. Like it's something that you would be proud to show off at an air show or a military parade or whatever. The world share. <laughs> yeah. Whatever function this is supposed to have. Yeah. Uh, I love that the helmet came from an old radio. That he just yeah, like that was great too. Made overnight, all on his own. Like he just figured it out and cut it up. Like I thought that was just that was really <laughs> impressive. But I did laugh really hard when I think it's right before that when um, when Cliff gets out of the plane and he's wearing the exact outfit that Brendan Fraser wears in the Mummy because you're like I'm expecting to see Brendan Fraser in this and it's literally <laughs> the exact same costume. Like that's so funny. I didn't even notice that. Pants, the white shirt, all like like dirty from the crash and like, you know, untucked a little bit. It was, it's like, it's the exact same thing. He's got yeah. the same haircut and everything. So I hair. Oh, yeah. Right. Yeah. So I guess since Although, we're on the subject of uh, the Rocketeer cliff, what do you guys think of uh, our, our main guy, our protagonist? I liked him. I thought he did a good job. I'm surprised I haven't seen him in more things just cause I, and maybe it's because this wasn't, well reviewed at the time but i thought he did a really really good job i thought he had the right blend of likability he wasn't uh, like he wasn't a good boyfriend but he wasn't an asshole about it he was just kind of doofy and stuck in his ways hadn't like a head in the clouds stereotypical fly boy kind of thing where and you know it's the 30s too so like men are typically aloof when it comes to the the ways of romance and relationships <laughs> Uh, you know, they're not necessarily the the best at respecting their, their women. Um, but I didn't think that he was like cocky or arrogant. I thought that he was he had the right blend of both um, confidence and all shucksness, I guess, is the, the phrase sure. I would yeah. use. Uh, but I thought he played the part really, really well. And Arbridge, what about you? I agree. Yeah. The, Adam, you're 
hitting the nail on the head. It's the right amount of confidence, but not cockiness, self-assuredness, but still like, you know, not everything comes to him naturally. You see him kind of struggling, but then recovering. There's a bit of sort of walking that fine line that like Harrison Ford does really well, like where he's in an action sequence, but like Indiana Jones is still going to goof up, but like come up with a clever way to recover. Mm -hmm. I just couldn't stop thinking about his floppy hair. I was like, you you pomade (laughs) that shit down, my son. Um, What were you going to say, Adam? Oh, I I think the perfect example of like the, the messing up, but also still being like, effective was when he's you know he's crashing around in the club uh, with the backpack on and he falls and lands on that snail and just like rides that snail around uh, because it's like <laughs> right that's not a choice you're making in this fight like that's not a strategic move that really throws them off their game like that's a mistake that you lucked out on <laughs> yeah and i think and like there's a lot of times where i think even when he's getting away from the nazis at the end where he just basically falls on his face and glides along the ground. Like there's a lot of those kinds of moments where it's like, this is not, you know, Tony Stark wouldn't make this choice per se. Like Mm -hmm. this is, this is something you fucked up and you're somehow spinning it into an advantage because that's just the kind of like stick-to-itiveness that you have to just turn the negative into a positive, even if you had no intentions of doing so at the beginning. Yeah. Johnny, how did you feel about him? Um, I was torn. I think you guys make a lot of valid points about him. I just think it was very safe, and I think there's a lot of more vibrant characters around him to kind of maybe give him an attitude or anything would be it wouldn't work. So I guess in that respect, I I you kind of have to settle with like his personality being kind of the way it is. I like that you're right. He's kind of like he's not right off the bat putting it on and like a professional, and he can do whatever he wants with. It. He's very clumsy with it. He's kind of flying around. I mean, even that first initial, uh, I know we kind of are jumping ahead a little bit, but that sort of first uh, flight, if you will, where he's trying to save the clown in the plane and it's all, you finally get to see it in action. He's very much new to it. He doesn't know how to, you know, use it or respect it and he has no idea what he's doing. But yeah, I guess he could have used a little bit more of a personality, at least for me, a little more charisma or something. I don't know what it's kind of missing for me. But if that's how the character is in the comic books or in the graphic novel, then then they nailed it. But I think he could have been just a little bit more a little bit more something for me. Something was missing for me, but I thought it was perfectly serviceable for the story. Yeah, I, I get what you're saying. He is a little bit milk toast and every man. Yeah, very um, vanilla. I think which a can, little bit can yeah. read land. And I think even you know, his uh, chemistry with Jennifer Connelly. Um, her character's name is Jenny Blake mm-hmm. in the movie. Yes. Yeah. It doesn't read, even though they were dating at the time, they did not do it for me. Like, the stakes of, like, I don't want her to blow up on a dirigible, but <clears throat> I don't care if you kiss her at the end of this sort of thing. Like, Yeah, I think what worked best is when other characters took the reins on the conversation and he sort of kind of was like a wall to sort of bounce stuff off of, mm-hmm. opposed to maybe where he was sort of like taking the like the control of the conversation and it was kind of like, all right, guy, it doesn't really seem like you know what you kind of want to do. It's like, we all got to get to the Griffiths uh, uh, Observatory. We got to save her. We got to save her. And like he didn't really make a 
a good argument at, at that office, at Howard Hughes' office. It was kind of just like, okay, sure, let's just go then. Like, it just it didn't really seem like he made a really big argument for it. But when you have like him and Alan Arkin kind of just like, and Alan Arkin's kind of saying, no, we can't go back to the house. It's all shot to pieces and all this other stuff. Like, that's funny. It works because it's just, it's it's one sort of like, okay, like, like blandish personality against a really vibrant personality, and it works. If you had like mm-hmm. two of them, it would be, I don't know, it, it'd be busy. Yeah. You need you need something to balance out like a delicious masaman curry, and that <laughs> thing is white rice. <laughs> right, right. He is white rice. Uh, oh. I, I think another good example of balancing him him getting set up for a good line was when he goes to pick Jenny up the first time. I like the banter with the house mother back and forth where she's just like, hey, no boy, like no gentleman after six. And he's like, oh, yeah. well, no gentleman. And uh, there's something he said right at the, oh, he called her warden as they're walking away. Oh, yeah. Like, okay. Warden, her reaction yeah. sells it. But I like that kind of, that's where he has like the most bravado is right there. Uh, and I think after he kind of gets smacked down at dinner, after that, he kind of loses that luster a little bit and does become a little bit more vanilla throughout it. But I think that kind of works because he's not at the top of his game anymore. He's he's losing his grip on his relationship. He's lost the plane that's going to get him to nationals, that's going to get them out of debt, that's going to get... I like. I don't know what their whole deal is. It seems like they're just racers, but they're also racers on their very last plane and their very last dime. So... He's not at the height of his confidence because all of these things have happened to him. And I like that he kind of sort of finds that throughout the rest of it. Like he gets smacked down pretty, pretty quickly. And then he starts to grow in confidence. And the more the movie brings him through all the different things that he's able to overcome in terms of getting away from the bad guys, trying to get this whole thing set up, saving the clown and all these, all these different things that kind of brings that swagger back a little bit. And it, but it never reaches that. Like he can just do anything. Even at the end, he's not the best rocket rocketeer rocketeer yeah <laughs> no it definitely like the, the the rocket pack definitely builds his confidence throughout the movie for sure and he mm-hmm. like by the end of it he's kind of like he's kind of like that every man that like okay that's probably what i would have just said that's that's what i have you know what i mean i'm in a, a room full of way more powerful people than i am and until i put that that rocket pack on and then you guys are tiny mm-hmm. little nothings and i'm the most powerful person uh in the country or whatever so yeah, I'm I'm we're kind of like in the middle, not maybe not in the middle-ish movie, but I'm it the, the second act is kind of hazy for me. There's a lot of different like smaller events that happen. The gangsters are kind of trying to figure out where the rocket pack is and they 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 go to the diner, which is a rather kind of intense scene if I have to say. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Them just beating up the patrons, uh, the patrons and uh just trying to hunt down um information. And then we have St. Clair kind of at the restaurant with her. Am I kind of we we at the right point here in the movie? about yeah yeah we've basically we've gone through meeting jennifer connelly rescuing marla hooch's dad and now they the house no, has been blown the up. It is a gazebo. Jack, yeah. yeah and now yep so now all of everyone's starting to collide on the uh I think it's South Seas restaurant, mm-hmm. the, the South Seas Club. or whatever yeah. the hell. South Seas Club, um, mm-hmm. which I like that as a set piece. I, yeah. There's a lot of window dressing in this movie that I like. Just the I orange the groves, 
and oh, to W.C. Fields, and that's probably Artie Shaw playing the clarinet, and yeah. uh, Hollywood Land. Um, so that sequence is one of my favorites. I like the I giant really oyster. Giant. The giant oyster mm-hmm. was good too. Yeah. yeah. I mean, that whole orchestra setup, like the, it's so grand. It's so, you know, it's so old Hollywood. The fact that he's got like a standing reservation. And when he stands up, when Sinclair stands up to get on the dance floor, there's no music. And then all of a sudden the whole band is there because they're like, oh, Neville Sinclair wants to dance with this beautiful lady. Like we got to, we got to get going. Like we got to, they got a snack to it. One, two, three, yeah. four, you know? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, I saw a lot of play, a lot of Indiana Jones playbooks going on and that are choices and that uh, mm-hmm. particularly the setting, because it reminded me of the temp, the beginning of the temple of doom mm-hmm. where like they had that same sort of time period where just everything sort of art deco-ish and silver and uh, you got the dancers and the, the music and the, uh, the waiters and, everyone's turning on each other <laughs> but yeah I, I i actually did really enjoy that set too just because not only was it just cool to kind of see all the interactions in the dinner and sort of him like dressing up as a waiter and hiding the rocket pack but when it finally did come out it wasn't like cgi like they had him like on a wire flying around the place so it looked kind of cool and practical and yeah i thought that was one of the cooler the cooler sets in the movie yeah and i like how that like, you know Jenny's in trouble because she's on the date with Sinclair. Uh, but it still seems rather lighthearted. I mean, he's not hes not being villainous or evil at that moment. It's just you're, you're worried because he's throwing on the charm and that he's mm-hmm. really trying to, you know, win her over so she'll give up the information. But it still seems fairly safe. But that's happening at the same time as the bar scene. So you're like, so the the back and forth or going from one to the next, we're like, oh, shoot, like, is one of these side characters going to get shot? Like, is Alan Arkin going to die? Because, I mean, this is a type of movie where, granted, it's a Disney movie. It's probably rated PG, if I had to guess. Yeah. But there's a good chance someone's going could die. You know, Disney's not above killing off parental figures in a <laughs> in a movie. <laughs> Alan Arkin could have. You know, Alan Arkin yeah. could have tried to make a heroic save and ends up catching one in the chest. And now, you know, now it's go time. So, I mean, that's a that's a really tense moment. And then you cut to this kind of underlying tension of is she going to give it up? Uh, the, you know, the information is she going to uh, is she going to get kidnapped? Is What's she, going to happen to her? But it's happening. Is she going to give it up? Yeah, <laughs> I had to clarify it. You know. Hey, her, yeah. it's her choice. <laughs> it's her own person. Uh, she has autonomy. Uh, I didn't want to imply. But <laughs> in that moment, there's a lot of underlying tension, but it's happening in this beautiful, like grandiose location. And I think that the two uh, juxtaposed against each other works really well. And so I think those scenes really play well together, both from the dingy bar where anything could happen to this big, you know, epic nightclub where. Granted, all hell's going to break loose very soon, but up until that point, it's just a normal dance scene sequence where everyone's just like having a ball. See, in the back of my mind, I was like, not only all this stuff going on is intense and the, the dialogue and everything, but now in the back of my mind, I'm worried that a fleet of flying Nazis are going to infiltrate Hollywood. And I have like, I'm thinking about that really more than anything else. Um, they didn't come in fly, but they showed up in uh, quite a spectacular fashion. Mm. Um, but 
yeah, I really enjoyed not to go jump ahead, but yeah, I did really enjoy that scene. I enjoyed again, like I said, like all the sort of him flying around and kind of flying into things and being clumsy, but sort of getting the job done at the same time. Even the interaction of sort of like slipping the note in the soup, which I thought I was like that. Just, that was a, like a crazy sort of. Um, oh, when he here's a point when he's does something charming and sort of like different when he's like done the soup and they're both sitting there waiting for him to leave and he just does this to the flowers like oh, hand handles that. them. And he's just rearranging. Saint Clair's like, "What? Get yeah. out of here, dude! What are you doing?" And then he's like trying to pour her water and everything. I thought we were gonna get soup on her twice in the movie. <laughs> yeah, she should not wear nice clothes to any restaurant ever. It's just gonna get no. soup on it, right? I did love that line too, where he's like, "Is this your first day?" And he's like, "No, sir. I served you last week." <laughs> <laughs> and he's like, "All right, fine then. Hmm, I don't remember, but let's go." Yeah, you see, sometimes he delivers the lines good, and then some other times it just sort of just fall flat and hopefully he's in a scene with someone else who can sort of pick him back up and sort of just keep keep the scene going but little things like that i was like okay this guy isn't that bad but they could have gotten someone a lot worse i'm sure Mm. i did i did love in that moment i don't know that it necessarily lends well to the uh the chemistry element between Jenny and Clip, but when they're hiding in the the bushes or the reeds or whatever, and he's explaining the whole plan, she's like, "Give me one good reason why why I should believe you," and he's like, "Cause I'd be lost without you." And she's just like, "Oh, like it's meant to be like, oh, I didn't. Oh my god, that's so sweet." But it's not like I love you. It's not a big, powerful, emotional statement. He's just like, "I'd be, I'd lose my head without you," and she's just like, "Oh," and then they kiss. I'm like, "That's <laughs> yeah." You're not really selling it, I think, the way you think that you are. But I still thought it was like a nice, <laughs> a nice little moment. How do we? We've talked about him. How do we feel about her as a character, as a romantic lead? I guess. I thought uh, she was. I thought she was perfectly fine. I mean, I've never really had a problem with any of uh, Jennifer Connelly's roles. I mean, just I think she's always just had sort of. I don't know. She's just she she comes off as being a strong woman in a lot of her roles. I've never seen her come off as like a weak sort of point in any of them. Like I'm trying to think everything from like labyrinth to like something like even like blood diamond, like, you know, going against like a lot of bigger and tougher people. She just stands her own ground. And I thought she was great because again, we talked about this guy being aloof and kind of like having his head in the clouds. And she kind of like was like the right one to kind of like just pull him out and be like, what are you talking about? Like just like what Adam said about like, I'd be lost without you. It's like, is that really all you got? Like, I thought you're gonna have something a little more, because <laughs> she wants, she wants like what like Saint Clair said to whatever that girl in the scene from the movie they were shooting. She wanted something like big and grand and something yeah. to sweep her off her feet, uh, even though they're hiding in uh, fake palm trees. Um, yeah. But no. no, I thought I thought she was perfectly fine. I like again, like just like this other guy, they could find someone a lot worse. But she's she's a recognizable, strong character. I think even at this point, she's already been in. A handful of movies so she people know her by now so maybe that has something to do with it just sort of like you remembering how strong she's been in other movies but i think she's she's interesting and she had a lot of interesting things to say in the movie yeah i think she's she did the best with what she was given which mm-hmm. to be fair is mostly damsel in distress uh i think her standout moments are after she's kidnapped i think that's her those are her best scenes Specifically, the fact that she remembers all these lines, uh, you know, where he thinks that he can get away saying these movie lines to her to, like, you know, sweep her off her feet. I think her 
her pretend acting in those moments were great where she's just like, what am I doing? I don't know what to do. Should I do this? You kidnapped me, but I don't know. I thought like she played that part really well. The two times that I really didn't like her uh, and they're both very similar is that she's a terrible, terrible vase hitter. When she yeah. hits the giant <laughs> uh, King Kong gent, as he's referred to at one point, uh, when she hits him over the head, it doesn't seem very hard. And like he went through a brawl in that house with Cliff and PV, and he didn't have like a scratch. He didn't move. He didn't really got taken down. And she bops him once with, granted, probably a really heavy object, but it didn't seem like a heavy hit, nor did the vase hit on on Sinclair. That never really, like, she hits him, and he doesn't move because he's, like, he sells it as he's out instantly, but it didn't feel heavy. Like, it never, it didn't feel like she walloped him real good. It just seemed like she touched him and it broke. And those were really the only two times that, that I was just like, come on, you can do better than that. Like, can we do another take maybe here? I feel like you could just take your you, shoe off and whip them. Yeah. Yeah. You could wallop them one, one, one better. But uh, those, I think those are the standout moments for her is that when she's kidnapped, everything kind of before and pretty much after is just very damsel in distress of standing off to the side and waiting to be rescued. So I, she, she did the best with what she was given, but obviously her role isn't meant to be one of, a sidekick whereas i feel like if this movie was made now she'd probably be more of a sidekick like i think uh marion in if we're comparing these to indiana jones which is apt given yeah. what we've seen i think marion is a really good more like a sidekick like she has her damsel in distress mm-hmm. moments too but she's also does i feel like she has more saving moments where uh jenny doesn't really have those here yeah so her character has changed pretty significantly from the comics. So the biggest, one of the biggest changes is her name in the comics was actually Betty Page. Mm-hmm. And she was pretty explicitly drawn to look like her. I'm going to send you both a photo and just this is not have safe your for reaction. Work. Should I... it's, yeah, don't, don't post <laughs> it to the feed necessarily. <laughs> but like, so she was a little bit more like here she's being played you know by Jennifer Connelly who's like (laughs) much younger and you know playing much more of the innocent and very much yet not not the case in the in the uh graphic novelization I'm no. curious if Joe Johnson sent this to Disney Disney World and said, like, hey, can we can we do this one right here? It's right. about a lush flying an airplane with a with a hooker. <laughs> um, yeah. Who can we get that looks like this? Who's yeah. looks like this? Although I will say the the one scene from the movie that reminds me of this panel that you've sent, again, I I mean you guys can can Google search this. I I don't necessarily want to put it on the feed. Uh, it's true. We try to keep the feet a little family friendly, even though we do swear. Um, but the shot where they first get to uh, the South Seas Club and they just pan down to her chest. They're just like, yeah, I was I, I was like, oh, they went there. I was like, because mm-hmm. it was just it was obviously noticeable yeah. early on that the way they sort of dressed her. And then even when she had the white dress on, I'm like, oh, for God's sakes. And then you had that idiot kind of come out of nowhere talking about I, I don't know. I'd said it before we went on the. Oh, uh, is it is it when she do they pan down when she comes in or is it oh, when I'm, oh, WC I'm, I'm Fields double, goes I'm, to the I'm doubly table? Doubly charmed, yeah. Doubly yeah. charmed. 
Yeah. And they pan down. And then he calls her my little kumquat, which is just like the grossest sounding thing a gross man can say to a to a younger woman. Uh, yeah, and then, he, and then he follows up with like, I'm going to sit down now and I want to hear, tell me your entire life story. It's like, oh, uh, <laughs> so cringe. I shook. I shook. <laughs> um, so crazy. <laughs> But that's an interesting pain that you sent us, Bridget, because it tells a lot in one. That's what I love <laughs> comic books. Like it tells a whole story in just one picture. One. I'm curious. Did did our guy have like an alcohol problem? And is that him? I think I think it is, and I think it's implied. Like a lot of the the original run was a little bit more adult in nature. Like one of the things that um, did I call him Dan earlier? Dave Stevens. Um, was like well known for like sort of repopularizing like pinup art in his career outside of like his work on comics too. That was like a theme that ran through his work. So I think yeah, it was a, a little lot bit of like more stuff spicy. Yeah, I think a lot of stuff happened. Like a lot of uh, people who do comic books, especially getting in the seventies and eighties, started being like, okay, if the movies are doing this, then like we can do it too, because it's like why not? So you yeah. had like them doing like the heavy metal comics and things like that, where you're seeing all this risque nature and stuff like that. So that's interesting that that is the origin of what I saw this yeah. uh, tonight. But um, nonetheless, they went there a little bit un- under the scope of Disney. But yeah, well, the other thing is this when it was first in development, it was going to be a touchstone picture. Like at the time, touchstone and Disney were one, but they would put their more like adult fare sure would be released by touchstone but like somewhere midway through disney said we're gonna take it over and i don't know if it's because dick tracy was considered a flop when it came out or just because they felt like oh this will be a great family movie like this will be the family movie of the summer but it was released the week after robin hood prince of thieves which is the kevin costner robin hood Mm -hmm. and then the week after the Rocketeer came out, Terminator Two came out. Oh, geez, no wonder so, it didn't make any money. <laughs> no one's yeah. seeing this. Yeah, so it was actually it <laughs> wow. was pretty well reviewed. Uh, it was well received at the time. Roger Ebert wrote a glowing review of it, but it just it was buried that summer. Wow. Um, yeah, that it happens. wasn't. Yeah, it wasn't even the top Disney movie that summer. Um, they had. I was reading this today. They had re-released 101 Dalmatians, just like they used (laughs) to do, and 101 Dalmatians beat out the Rocketeer. Wow. Yeah. That's a shame, because I do really think this movie deserved a lot more viewership and money. And I did read briefly that I guess they are sort of doing sequels to this, or at least trying to do sequels to this now, of all times, 30 years later. Mm. Um, But why not? Uh, yeah, that's too bad. In between uh, that and Terminator Two is a that's a bad place to be. Yeah, it's a rock and a hard place. Yeah, I definitely I think this would have been cool if this had turned into a franchise at the time. Like, I don't know that I necessarily would want to revisit it thirty years later. I feel like at this point you leave it this one standalone and like what a fun thing that it was. But at the time, if they had been like, no, we're greenlighting a sequel, I think this universe could have been really cool uh, and. Given mergers and things, you could have folded this guy in somehow to the, you know, the Marvel Cinematic Universe as a prototype, and you, know, you could mention it or something like that. 
but I don't know that I necessarily want to revisit it now. But yeah, that's a that's a tough that's yeah. a tough release date to, to have. I was I was curious I was curious to see if they were and and I want to touch on the whole big uh, set piece at the end with the Nazis, but mm-hmm. I will say I was curious if they were going to do anything about like alluding to it more in the franchise, if you will. And obviously we saw the the blueprints being handed off to Alan Arkin. And I was like, well, Alan Arkin's still alive, and I think all these other cats are. And I'm like, there's, they, they could do it. I mean, they just got to make a case for it, I think. So we have the big dinner fight, the, the whatever. She got, he saw the note in the soup. We saw her go back to his place, and it was just this really weird scene with her drugged out and picking out dresses. I don't know. What do you guys think of that part of the movie before the, the blimp shows up? <laughs> I mean, that was my, like, like I said, that was my favorite uh, moments from, from Jenny in this was that whole sequence. It's, it's weird and it's cringy and, and everything, but I like that very early on, you can tell that she's playing the part. Like I think, and I think that was a cool moment for her because you know, she's a struggling actress. I mean, you see it earlier where she says that she's, that the director liked her version of the line really well in the audition and then smash cut to the actual filming of the movie that she's in, and she doesn't have that. You realize she's the background extra, and the woman they got sucks. It's a nice redemption moment that this big, fancy Hollywood leading man, third highest grossing actor or whatever of <laughs> 1938, that he doesn't even see through it, that she's so good at her job. Like, she's so good at being an actress that even him... Granted, he's probably sitting there and he's on his high horse and thinking that he's this Mr. Charming and no one will be able to see through his facade because up until this point, nobody has. But so he's probably a little overconfident. But the fact that she's able to pull that off so well and do such a good job at acting that she fools him in that moment to get into the secret room, to steal the plans, to find out that he's a Nazi. I really liked that sequence a lot because it it made her more than just a damsel in distress. It kind of redeemed her character a bit for me that she was able to do more than just go, Oh no, Cliff save me. Uh, and so I, I, even though it was a little creepy, uh, especially given what we know of Hollywood actors in many instances, <laughs> um, it like the scene kind of hits differently now than I think it probably would have in 1991. But uh, I really, I liked that, that, that sequence for her and for her character. What about you, Bridget? Yeah, I mean, it definitely, it it does hit a little bit different in 2021 <laughs> than uh, 1991. But yeah, I I enjoy it that, like like you said, Adam, the her really playing it off. Um, I don't know. The other thing is, Timothy Dalton is so good in these scenes. Yeah, you know, he's, he's playing, mm-hmm. he's doing such a good job of like, you as the viewer know he's slimy and creepy. You don't know he's a Nazi yet, but you know he's slimy and creepy and not good. But you're still, you can see how this could be so charming and slick. And, you know, she's doing a good job of playing it off of, oh, I don't know what she's going to do. So I enjoyed it, you know. I, yeah. I mostly liked the scene that is happening parallel to this one that I enjoyed more was Cliff riding, flying on the spruce goose after the Howard Hughes interaction. 
Oh, right, right, right. Where he's like, it does fly. It does yeah. fly. I love that moment. Yeah. Um, but yeah, them all meeting up at the uh, Griffith Observatory. Mm-hmm. Um, that I like that. That was a fun little conversation. And yeah, then, it was a great standoff. Like it was there were so many standoff. elements to it, and they just kept adding like. Because when he first flies in there, my thought is, what's your plan here? Right. He because has none. Yeah. You've got the rocket pack. So that's good. That's that's you're able to do a quick escape. But you've got to get Jenny out, too, which means you've got to be able to grab her and fly away and have her make sure that she's safe and secure. And neither one of you are going to get shot out of the sky. So uh, there's, there's, there's too many Tommy guns, which I love all of the Tommy guns. in this. Movie. I love Tommy guns. Yeah. I know we glossed over it and we make reference to the gazebo thing, but the um, the sheer amount of bullets that those FBI agents were firing at that house with their guns was comically hilarious. Like, I, I loved it. And I loved in this moment, too, like when everything kind of breaks down and the FBI agents like that thing's filled with hydrogen. One wrong shot. And we're all out of here. <laughs> <laughs> I also I like the. Fire. Yeah. I love the shot where everybody it's it's become the gunfight at OK Corral. Just people are firing in all different directions. And then all of a sudden there's Paul Servino and uh, like just a random G man, like firing. And then they both look at each other and like, anyways, yeah. Like there's people unloading clips and putting clips back in. And it's just like, Oh my goodness. Like the house is a screen porch right now. It's done. Like, well, you know, it was also like the, even before anyone fires a single shot it is a little bit like the anchor fight in anchorman just people different oh channels God, are coming mm-hmm. together Can we talk about alan argan gets folded like five times in this movie he gets like thrown once by i'm calling him the face or face whatever that guy's name is um and then he gets thrown again like like when he's in the attic at the uh the diner i think Mm-hmm. I don't know. He gets handled a few times in this movie. I'm like, God, leave my man alone. <laughs> leave <laughs> my guy alone. alone. Um, no, I love that whole standoff, especially because like as the plan unfolds of like, okay, my, I thought it was cool that his plan was tell Eddie that he, that Sinclair is a Nazi because yeah, he's a gangster. Yeah. He's probably got loose morals, but he's correct in his assumption that like, at least he's American. Like at least he's, you know, he he would back the boys overseas or whatever. And granted, they're not they're not quite there yet. Yeah. Um, but he knows the Nazis are the enemies at this point, given what's going on in the rest of the world. Uh, and so I really like that his plan was okay. I'm gonna turn I'm gonna turn him against Sinclair yeah. by revealing that he's a Nazi. But then I love that Sinclair's one step ahead, and that he's got the the blimp full of Nazis to just come out of the bushes. You know, oh my with, God. with their guns and everything. And it, it was cool too, because I, I didn't realize it until it happened that I probably should have saw this coming again. I wasn't necessarily thinking Sinclair is a Nazi, but when they go to the movies earlier and they show you the newsreel that says Nazi blimp coming to Los Angeles as part of nationwide Nazi blimp tour. I, I didn't really think about that too. Yeah. <laughs> but then when it happened, I was like, Oh yeah, they told us this was going to happen like an hour ago. And I didn't even think about it. And so I was constantly being surprised at things I probably should have saw coming, but that were just, they were so part of the real world experience of just like, oh, they're going to the movies and they're showing you a thing about Nazis. Like, this is just a touch to show the realism. It's not going to immediately come back and be important to the story. But yet it was. Yeah. Well, the setup, 
there's great setups throughout the movie that are subtle, but pay off really well. The blimp, maybe that one is not as subtle, but the gum and yeah, the right. covering up the hole at the end. Or the not. gum I saw coming. I knew oh. that was going to be the... I didn't necessarily think right away like when he was putting it on the plane or anything like that but the second they used it to cover up the hole and it it held really well whatever's in that gum from the third, just, like <laughs> well, we saw cement. that we saw that it was howard Hughes gum or at the yeah. end or whatever Pepsi. yeah uh beeman's uh chuck yeah. yeager's favorite as well <laughs> but yeah for me like i i knew there was gonna be some sort of nazi thing maybe going on at the end because they showed the whole propaganda and the flying nazis and everything and i maybe sort of forgot about it getting towards the uh the climax of that but when they came out of the bushes and i'm like oh no they're in california now i'm like i just <laughs> i was like this, kid, <laughs> this nazis in california right now um and then the blimp showed up and i let out a big laugh but um i know the way you see it just completely dwarfing the griffith observatory was just like oh, oh my god like it's so it's so excessive but yeah and then i sort of just I was like, here we go with another Indiana Jones playbook again. Yeah. But um, yeah. it was I, – I enjoyed whatever action there really was on that, which there was a, quite a bit. I enjoyed – I mean it was, it was done well. I liked that he flew off and – or uh, St. Clair got rocketed into Hollywood land and just killed off those four letters. We didn't need him anymore. I know. Um, I did laugh really hard at that. But <laughs> I always love when movies do that where they they take the thing that like we know is going to happen eventually – and they use it as part of the set. Like, I can't give any other examples off the top of my head. Yeah, I'm, I'm sure most of them have to do with the Hollywood sign that I'm thinking of, where it's just like a fun way to get rid of land. Or like, you know, when when an old timey, there's a company where it's like such and such and such and such, but you know that they're going to break apart and become their own thing at some point. And you yeah. see that part of the sign and you're like, Oh, that's how we got just Sears instead of Sears and Roebuck. Yeah. Like a lightning <laughs> strike hits the sign and it just cuts it in half. It's like, yeah, yeah. there it is. They're separating. Yeah. yeah. Um, I love those little moments. Cause they're fun. I like all the, fa- I like the fact that this is set in the real world too. I like that. It's, it's Howard Hughes. They mention uh, Hoover as the, you know, the head of the CIA or the FBI, you know, I like that those, it's obviously Nazis. Like I like that this is set in the real world and not a parallel 1938 that has more fantastical things or like this isn't Tomorrowland 1938. This is the real 1938. uh, And it, it lends a, a little bit of, of a nice touch to the, to the whole proceeding. Right. Yeah. It keeps like all the sort of physicalities of what you would find in that in, in that time period. It's just like an alternate universe is kind of just like a like an inglorious bastard type of situation where it's still very real. It's just a alt- just alternate history of a Nazi blimp flying over L.A. But um, nonetheless, I, I am I was I was excited to see that they did stick uh, stick to the ground with this one. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I know you mentioned it earlier, Jenny, but I did really, really like the animated Nazi propaganda film. Not really like in the way that it moved me or anything. Uh, but I just <laughs> I like that sequence a lot. Uh, just because like they show the first one of the test, the German test pilot blowing up. And then they're like, oh, but then, you know, I was surprised that they were surprised at what the plan was for men in jetpacks. I don't know why you wouldn't think they wanted to build a whole fleet of flying soldiers in jetpacks. That seems like the logical conclusion to this. But I did like that animated sequence of just them showing you like what the competition would be like if they succeeded. I thought that was just a really cool little film that they showed. 
Right. So that's interesting you say that, and I kind of looked it up pretty quickly because I was curious to see what sort of Nazi lore has existed within uh, Walt Disney pictures uh, in the past. It's a rabbit they, hole. It's a bad <laughs> rabbit hole, and I wouldn't go down it, but I would I would t- tell you that they do have uh, – they are familiar with making uh, uh, World War II and Nazi mm-hmm. propaganda animations during World War II. So – there may have been someone who penned one of those back in the 40s who did the same thing and, and made some frames here for this one. So, yeah, definitely a rabbit hole for sure. I mean, I'm not even sure if in the the Avengers or sort of like Civil War they touch on any of that stuff in relation to Nazis or anything like that. Because I know there's some period elements to at least Captain... Well, the first Captain America movie, when it came out, I don't think they were under the Disney umbrella yet. They might have been, but I don't think that movie was actually put out by Disney. I think Avengers was the first one. Um, So there's no subtle nods to it. Like, I feel like if it was made now under the full Disney banner, we might have gotten, you know, Cap at the movies when he's, you know, scrawny watching one of those Donald Duck fights the Nazis you know, cartoons from the forties. Right. Uh, so they, they don't, they don't do any of those, uh, direct, uh, you would never see a swastika now in a Disney movie. Yeah. Um, cause I know now even Indiana Jones is considered a Disney property. If I'm correct. Yes. Technically. Mm, cause it's 20th it? century. It is Lucasfilm, so it's that's Lucas that, that's what it ha- yeah. Oh, yeah. So, but what about when the mountain, the Paramount Mountain, and then it's the mountain? <laughs> Anyways, it's not going well, anywhere. I, I promise cinema. you. <laughs> yeah, no, like they own the property. Like the Indy Five is going to be a Disney movie because they own Lucasfilm and it's a Lucasfilm property. I was like, I know there's a connection somehow. Oh, um, that's interesting. Yeah, right, right. So I'd have to say this one, like, like for sure, is like the heaviest nazi related disney movie i think i've ever seen but if we're talking about like legacy stuff and stuff that they've sort of grabbed you know obviously we have raiders of the lost ark and you know the other ones but i was sort of taken aback with how much they chose to have those be the villains in this and it wasn't even like under like the touchstone mod like the, the heading or anything like that it was a walt disney picture um so interesting nonetheless but i enjoyed seeing it it was cool i mean i always like seeing nazis getting their fucking ass kicked so um, so one thing to tag back to earlier, uh, Tiny Ron Taylor, uh, who played uh, Lothar, as I believe the character's name. I don't know that it's ever said, but that's at least what it says online. Uh, but ti- Tiny Ron Taylor is seven feet tall, just to uh, to fill in that gap. And I oh, did realize seven feet tall. Seven feet tall. Yeah, he was also in Ace Ventura, which I obviously didn't recognize him because he's wearing this mask. But he's one of the uh, the heavies in uh, in Ace Ventura. Hmm. So I know we talked a little bit about like sequels and stuff like that. They, uh, I did see that as of February of last year, they had greenlit work on a, on a sequel. Again, like I watch it now because I've seen this. I don't know that it's necessarily a thing that needs to exist. I don't think I would have been in the camp of please make more. I kind of like that it's a, a one and done. But I joked with you guys when we were texting that there is technically a sequel or a show based on this series. Uh, that came out in 2019 for Disney Junior, of all things. Like, Johnny, you mentioned being weirded out by the villains being Nazis. And yet the first Rocketeer-based thing we've got since this movie is Four Children and Animated, <laughs> where the uh, the grand the great-granddaughter of Cliff gets the jetpack to become the new Rocketeer. Okay. So I, uh, I, haven't, I haven't obviously seen anything from that. The 
the little poster that's on Disney Plus when you search Rocketeer looks like it's a standard Disney Junior show. I I would hope there's some educational value of teaching you about flight and aerodynamics and things like that. And I don't know what the villain would be. Maybe somebody else with a jetpack. I, I don't know. Let, but, let's hope. Yeah. <laughs> let's hope for the kids it is. That's kind of cool, though. Yeah, I like it that they're doing all that because it's a very – not an inexpensive way, but a, a cheaper way to sort of flesh out stories with animation and, you know, capture a bigger audience with that. But yeah, I think to your point, I don't think you need a sequel for this movie. I think it's perfectly fine the way it is. I mean, you can tell this guy was sort of like just over it. I mean, he was, he's done. He wants to be with Jenny. He doesn't want to fly that thing anymore. I mean, again, you can always come up with some ridiculous plot line for why he wants it again or getting pushed into something or Jenny gets kidnapped and, he has to use the pack to fly to Germany, back to Germany, or I don't know what. I mean, I feel but, like if given the chance, he would absolutely want to fly this thing again. I think at the end, he's just excited to have that plane to go race because he knows that it's destroyed or whatever. But the fact that they've got the plans, I think in a moment's notice, if he was – because he even says, he's like, this is the closest I'll ever get to heaven or whatever. Heaven, yeah. Uh, granted, he then looks at Jenny and says, maybe not, maybe not so fast. But I think if given the opportunity, he would strap this thing on in a – in a heartbeat and maybe it maybe if you had done it at the time you could have been like actually the nazis cracked it without even stealing yours they they figured it out he got a radio communique out that explained the double housing thing or whatever and now they've got a whole squadron of soldiers and we need you cliff to lead a battalion of our own rocketeers or something but i i guess you'd have to probably time jump it now but we'll uh, we'll see if it if it ever comes to fruition yeah I don't know, Bridget, what about you? Do you have any uh, interest <laughs> sequel I, to I this? I don't think it needs it. I feel like, yeah, no, I don't I don't need a sequel. I'm satisfied with where we ended up. Thank you, Howard Hughes, for the plane. See you later. And it's also, <laughs> you know, this is a, what I would... A sequel is fine, whatever. I just won't watch it. But a reboot would feel more offensive to me because i think this is a really good movie and just leave it alone yeah. um, which is what i fear might happen yeah i think it would become but. probably too too much reliant on the action and kind of lose the the grounded kind of nature that this is because even though this is fantastical that in the 30s someone was able to create a jetpack that's able to be flown the way this is it never gets too over the top. The action feels grounded. Where I feel like now it would be him doing flips with it, and it would be kind of it would be more Iron Man esque, where he's doing all sorts of crazy maneuvers and things like that. Which, while it would look cool, would kind of take some of the sheen off of the story. Mm-hmm. And so I I don't know that I necessarily trust that they un- understand at least what I like about it. Granted, some people might be like, no, 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 I want to see the Rocketeer be action-y. I want to see him do all these cool flip tricks and kicks and incorporate, you know, kung fu into the whole thing. Uh, but, like, but we've got Iron Man. But then that, just watch so. Iron Man, you yeah, know? Yeah, exactly. Like, let Rocketeer have his floppy hair and his leather suit and leave it alone. Yeah. <laughs> but, no, I would I would much prefer, I guess, a sequel with the if we had our choices, then a reboot, because I, I do think a reboot would lose a lot of the charm. Yeah. It could still you get, be good, but yeah, I mean, it'd be cool if you got like as many of the same people as you could as, as in this one, like Alan Arkin, you got the same guy who played cliff and some other one just for like fun. Cause I mean, all those guys are still around. A lot of them are still acting. I think I'm kind of just poking around now. It seems like most of them, especially cliff is still kind of doing small things here and there, but 
I think if he got the phone call, he'd be like, yeah, hell yeah, let's do this thing. But And it would just be sort of like a fun thing to see. But yeah, I just, overall, like, are people who have never seen The Rocketeer, it almost, almost makes no sense to, to do a sequel or reboot to it, to be honest with you. Yeah. And it's cool to, like, it's nice to leave cult status films as cult films. You know, there's something, you lose something when you take a cult film and try to turn it into a franchise, especially so far after the fact. And I know there's probably some cult classics that I do wish had sequels that I was like, oh man, I actually just really love that universe and those characters. And I would see a million movies with them. And I don't have that same affinity for this, obviously, because I just watched it now for the very first time. But having said that, I feel like there's enough things where we've dipped into the well multiple times that it's nice to just leave cult films as cult films and they can be enjoyed and they can be a thing that you show people that they may have missed. And, you know, it's a nice thing. You know, so I don't I don't necessarily want that to, to go away, which it would if it becomes like a franchise or tentpole kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Agreed. Anything else anybody wants to go over then for this week? I I think I'm good. I again I I think I I was pleasantly surprised with it. I just remember parts of it from seeing it as a kid, but um yeah I think it should live as a as a soul movie. It doesn't need to be made into a sequel or anything like that. I thought all the characters were fun. Alan Arkin is always a pleasure to see in any movie, but was pleasantly surprised with this. I liked it. Yeah, me me too. I was I was very happy with this. I didn't necessarily know what to expect going in. I was kind of glad that it was less superhero-y than I was maybe anticipating, uh, mostly just because I don't know how it would have played if it was a straight superhero-style movie. I like that it was just a, a, you know, an aw shucks kind of guy who gets thrust into a position where he needs to step up. Uh, and I just thought it was fun. I, I laughed a few times. I, I thought the action was good. It was the right amount of it. There was tension. The the old Hollywood set pieces I thought were fantastic as we talked about. And yeah, I totally get why people like this movie. Yeah. Bridget, any last thoughts? Nothing for me. Well, I'm glad you liked it more the second time, Bridget. Yeah. It was a good, you know, one last thing that I like about this movie too, is it moves. Mm -hmm. There's not a lot of like, not a lot of fat sitting and like angsting and over the problem. It's just like, how are we going to put the gum in the rocket and fly to the plane, pull the clown out? We're going to the club now. It just mm-hmm. moves, moves, moves. So, yeah. There's nothing to really more... trim. Yeah. Know? There really isn't, no. Like, I, would, I wish more movies were like that. <laughs> yeah, where everything feels important, and it, and it, but it's not three hours. Yeah. <laughs> Cool. All right. Well, thanks for showing this to me, guys. I appreciate it. Yeah. Um, well, that will do it for this week's episode of Fine, I'll Watch It. Remember, you can find every episode of Fine, I'll Watch It every Thursday morning at 9 a.m. on Google Podcast, Apple Podcast, Podbean, Stitcher, and Spotify. Uh, you can also find us on Facebook and Twitter at Broken Clock Pods. Uh, so let us know what you think of The Rocketeer. Let us know what you think of some of those off-kilter early 90s superhero movies. What are your favorite in that kind of comic book graphic novel genre? Do you like the Dick Tracys, your Phantoms, your Rocketeers, your... I uh, can't even think of any other ones right now, but let us know uh, on Facebook and Twitter at Broken Clock Pods. Just a tease for the next couple of weeks. 
uh, we are going to bring in a special guest that uh, some of you may know if you listen to the Broken Clock podcast games cast as John will be joining us uh, to discuss both the original 1995 Mortal Kombat as well as the brand new 2021 Mortal Kombat. So those will be coming out in the next couple of weeks. So make sure that you uh, like and subscribe on your favorite podcast platform so you can hear all about that ridiculous movie and what I hope is a new ridiculous movie. Um, but I'm very excited to show those to you, Bridget. <laughs> cannot <laughs> wait. It's going to be a hoot. Uh, but once again, for Fine, I'll Watch It, my name is Adam. I'm Bridget. And I'm Johnny. And thanks so much for listening. Thank you.